Hello and welcome to another episode of the Indoor Environment Show. Uh, I'm Bob Krell, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Don Weeks, who is the president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA. And be before we forget, lest, lest we forget, uh, this program is a collaboration between ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, and IEQGA. So, hey, Don, how's it going? Hey. Good, good. Everything's well, and uh, I'm glad that we're finally into spring, and we're getting some green buds. So it's uh, it's, it's spring a, it's up good. by you in Canada right now. It's like it's like 40 degrees here in Syracuse and downpour, and it seems like it could be. But see, that's, January. That's that's Canadian spring. That's okay. <laughs> All right, so that's good for you. I mean, for for me, I'm going to tell you right now. We had 80, almost 90 degree weather a week ago. Yeah, yeah, that's we, we had a little odd. bit of that too, but uh, it's back odd. to more normal right now. But we'll see. So we have a good show today. Absolutely. We always have a good show, but it, it, we, nice. you know, along all the good shows that we have, this is another one. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad to invite our, our guests um, and uh, to indicate that uh, this uh, appearance of John Mulhausen is uh, sponsored by the American Industrial Hygiene Association. John is retired in, 19, in 2018 from 3M with over 30 years of increasing responsibility for occupational health and safety, including industrial hygiene. Mr. Mohazen earned a PhD in environmental health and in indoor, uh, I'm sorry, in industrial hygiene specialization at the University of Minnesota. So welcome, John. Well, yeah, great to be here, here Don, Bob. Yeah, hi, thank well, you. Hello. Yeah, nice to be here. Uh, yeah, we have the same kind of weather as Canada here in Minnesota. So. Uh, oh yeah, you're up. So, yeah, you're up in that area. So you no know, super super warm uh, weather. Anyway, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, uh, we're very glad that you're here. So. Let me start with some of our questions that we have. Um, I've noted, of course, that you have a PhD in in, uh, in uh, industrial hygiene, in effect, but you also had a BA in chemistry, cum laude, from St. Olaf College in 1978. How did you become interested from the uh, chemistry background in industrial hygiene and environmental health? Yeah, no, it, like uh, many of us, uh, Don, maybe you have a similar story. Uh, I knew nothing about industrial hygiene when I was in college. And um, I, I happened to um, <laughs> I happened to be related to my dad. That's an odd way to say it. <laughs> my, my dad, it turns out, um, was involved in setting up the original uh, education research center here at the University of Minnesota. Uh, he was involved in training occupational physicians, occupational health physicians, and they put together a consortium to. Uh, put in place this ERC at the University of Minnesota for um, industrial hygiene, occupational health nursing, occupational health uh, physicians, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I was sort of bemoaning the fact that uh, while chemistry was interesting, I really didn't see myself working in a lab for my uh, whole life and uh, came and, and mentioned, you know, here's this thing going on. You should go look at it. And uh, I did. And, uh, you know, of course, at that time, um, the feds were putting a lot of money into uh, uh, generate, you know, putting in place those uh, resource centers. And so there was uh, a, a really nice resources available to support uh, us as students. And um, uh, I don't know, it just resonated with me, the, the practical aspects of uh, helping people of um, kind of really working within industry and understanding how things are made. That's always interested me a little bit. And, and oh yeah, I get to apply some of that chemistry stuff. So um, it was it was dumb luck, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Did you uh, go right from undergrad to grad school? No, I, uh, oh yeah, no, I did. I went right from undergrad to grad school, uh, finished my master's, then went to work uh, for the US Army. Uh, mm. for a couple of years. Great experience. Uh, this was in an um, area, Edgewood to Arsenal, um, part of Ab Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland. So um, got me out of Minnesota to see a little more of the world. And they were great about taking uh, a wet behind the ears new graduate and just throwing me out there and saying, hey, go, go figure out this 
industrial hygiene thing. And so we, we had a lot of fun um, working in that organization. Uh, as I was doing that, I realized, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff I don't know, and I would really like to learn it better. So I decided to go back to grad school and uh, um, mm-hmm. applied to a couple places, ended up at uh, back at Minnesota, and um, it all worked out. Yeah, I, I note that uh, you received your master's degree and a PhD from the University of Minnesota, both degrees with a specialization in industrial hygiene. But what really caught my attention when I read your CV is that your graduate thesis was entitled Aspergillus and Other Human Respiratory Disease Agents in Turkey Confinement Houses. And it took two years to complete that uh, research while you were also a teaching assistant at the University of Minnesota. And it was published by the American Industrial Hygiene uh, Association. I assume that's your first um, research paper that was uh, published in 1987. So you can tell us a little bit about the thesis and its findings. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting uh, story. So most people don't know that Minnesota is the number one turkey producing state in the country by far, Mm. you know, like by 10 million birds a year sort of thing. And um, there's an organization called the Minnesota Turkey Growers, who back in the mid uh, 80s were really concerned that their primary concern, to be honest, was about their turkeys, that uh, every winter they would um, have big outbreaks of um, turkey disease and death uh, in their confinement houses. So basically, turkeys are are raised in Minnesota in, in huge pole barns um, and, uh, you, you know, the confinement houses. And so... Uh, they approached the University of Minnesota um, uh, Agriculture School, who through this uh, ERC that I mentioned earlier, there there was a connection between the Agriculture School and the School of Public Health. Um, And and the connections were made so that the Minnesota turkey growers funded uh, my research project to go to better understand what the environment was in those uh, confinement houses. Um, it was a partnership with the the vets over in the, the agriculture side of the school. And so what we did was um, make trips out to the confinement houses. We were measuring the stuff in the air. Uh, the, the primary agents uh, turned out to be um, fungus and ammonia, but we measured all kinds of stuff. And we also uh, harvested turkeys so that the uh, the vets could do uh, analyses of the, the turkey lungs. And um, in the end, what we learned was as winter came to Minnesota, just as it does in Syracuse or does in uh, Canada, uh, things get cold. And so sure. guess what? You shut down the buildings and it costs a ton of money to heat them. So they weren't putting in a lot of fresh air. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, common sense says, guess what happens to ammonia levels as all the, you know, turkey droppings, et cetera, uh, decay. And guess what happens to the uh, bedding that now gets kind of wet and soggy and the fungal material starts to grow on there. And uh, the, the levels were grossly elevated as you move from spring, summer, mm. winter, or fall into winter. So it was a it was a year of data collection, Don, mm. and uh, um, kind of both the indoor environments and the the turkeys. And of course, what the vets found was uh, yes, indeed, the aspergillus in particular infections in the birds uh, went crazy in the winter. And uh, the hypothesis was that the the ammonia uh, damaged the ciliary tracts of the turkeys. And so they weren't able to remove the aspergillus um, the mm-hmm. way that they typically could. And, and the aspergillus uh, concentrations went up in the air as well. And so, uh, you know, the direct result of the, the research was um, a commitment on the part of the turkey growers to bring in more fresh air Uh, during those winter months so that they could better manage the ammonia and the uh, aspergillus. And and 
you know, of course, my interest was from the human point of view. Uh, for that particular initial study, we weren't able to uh, do a lot with the, the humans, but obviously I was looking at the contaminants from um, the worker point of view. But subsequent studies, uh, some at the University of Minnesota, some at Iowa, uh, were able to look a little more broadly and um, think more carefully about a broader range of agents, um, including endotoxins uh, and impacts on the people. So it was pretty, pretty, pretty cool thing. Uh, again, I, I think uh, the the turkey growers, to be very blunt, were mostly interested in protecting their uh, their crops, you know. But as uh, as a nice side benefit, uh, a lot of benefit for the people that had to go and work in those barns. Uh, that was going to be my question, John. Was there an issue with the workers? Because, like, obviously, if those elevated aspergillus levels were happening, you know, the workers probably weren't wearing any PPE. I'm assuming. Well, they weren't at the start, but okay. uh, as we saw the levels increasing, uh, you know, it was, it was part of our job to say, you know, this is what we're seeing. Uh, here are respirators you can use for the ammonia because the ammonia got really, really bad. Uh, and um, so we worked hard to, to make sure that the people on the farms we were working with uh, were protected. Um but our, our study wasn't looking at the human health. That that was more mm -hmm. sort of a side thing, Bob, where, okay. you know, I, I wasn't going to go in the, there without a respirator. And sure. I, yeah. was, the workers were right there with me. So um, we worked hard on that. And, and um, you know, the subsequent uh, presentations to the turkey growers uh, and, and communications through their network um, really had an impact both on the environment for the turkeys and for the environment for the workers so yeah it was cool it was a really uh interesting project for a city boy from minneapolis <laughs> <laughs> that was uh I, I think one of your first papers that was published by the uh in the journal the aihr journal yeah, yeah it was yeah so was there a turning point there because that's that was definitely a research project but within a very short period of time you joined 3m in like 1986 as a senior industrial hygienist. Did you did you see yourself as a, as more of a, a researcher at that point or, or were you more interested in being a part of the corporation? I was always more interested in practice. I was always more interested mm -hmm. in how to make uh, the practice of industrial hygiene as efficient and effective as we could make it. Um, I'm, I'm very much a process thinker uh, my experience uh, at the Army, uh, and, and this has nothing to do with the Army, it's more to do with how we as industrial hygienists sort of have or, or traditionally practice. It, it, it was very ad hoc. And so uh, it seemed to me we could um, do better. Um, the opportunity I had going back to school for the PhD was I, I was able to do, um, Minnesota has a very strong um, uh, mechanical engineering uh, particulate um, um, program. So uh, a lot of um, uh, expertise in filtration theory, particle dynamics, all those kind of things. So I was able to take a lot of courses in that, uh, take courses in um, uh, ventilation uh, in the engineering department, kind of, kind of expand um, the practical things that I would need to know when I got into work. And so, um, yeah, no, I, I was I was always more interested in practice than I was in pure research. Uh, but because of my um, interest in learning how to do better, uh, even in practice, we were always thinking about, okay, what what are our barriers here, and how might we um, either find the science or uh, support the science to get us over those barriers. Yeah, and uh, that brings me to what we wanted to talk to you about, which is exposure assessment part of uh, in, in industrial hygiene practice. You know, you've, you and your colleagues have published numerous papers, manuscripts, and books on that topic, and you presented at many uh, conferences as well. Can you tell us why you have emphasized that exposure assessment is important and necessary, a part of an industrial hygiene investigation? Yeah, sure. You know, and, and um, uh, ultimately, Everything we do as we think about how an environment might impact people, 
whether it's in a factory or a house or an apartment building or out in a community. <clears throat> Everything we do when we think about that starts with what are the potential exposures here? What could they do to uh, people? And is there enough of it there so that we would worry about it doing those things to the people? So exposure assessment is really at the heart of uh, the profession of industrial hygiene, certainly the profession of people who practice indoor air quality uh, kinds of activities. Uh, in the end, we depend on our ability to make accurate uh, decisions about the exposures in those work environments so that we can decide whether they're bad or not bad. And if they're bad, uh, recommend controls and get those put in place. And if they're okay, then, um, you know, state it as such and uh, move on to the next thing that, that might be bad. So um, exposure assessment has always been uh, of primary interest to me because it is so core to what we do and just about everything else that that we implement as part of our practice depends on uh, our ability to make accurate exposure decisions. So the better we can do at it, the more efficient we can be about it, the more um, uh, accurate we can be right at the start, um, the, the more quickly we're going to be able to decide whether we need to implement controls or not, the more quickly we can move on to, to fixing things. And so uh, that, that's been at the core of my kind of professional interests. I mean, I, I, I would comment that that's really uh, almost paramount when you're trying to be proactive rather than reactive, right? I mean, Absolutely. That's, I, that's looking forward as opposed to going in and going, oh, oh, something happened. People were injured. People were, you know, affected. You're, you're really trying to, you're looking, making that assessment on the front end saying this, this could happen. And how Absolutely. And, then, you know, that's why I like our business. In the end, we're, we're interested in making sure people don't get hurt. Let, let's, uh, you know, I get that we absolutely need the back end folks who are uh, know how to treat and and help people recover after they're they're hurt. Uh, but, you know, if we can if we can get the resources we need to really understand those environments and ensure that they're going to be safe and healthy for people, uh, we save a ton of money on the back end, and and it all starts with an assessment of, of what the exposures in those environments can do to people. Now, you know, sometimes anticipation becomes really important, right? We, we know we're going to build a new building. Uh, we know uh, there are potential. So let's go back to the turkey barns. Now we're going to build a new confinement house. Well, <clears throat> the science tells us now that uh, we need to have enough fresh air in there so that we are diluting the, the ammonia. We're uh, not allowing the aspergillus to grow. Uh, we could maybe manage the bedding better so that the stuff doesn't grow. Now we can think ahead of time about how we might build that building to uh, heat it in an efficient way, uh, but do it in a way that we're getting the right air changes through that building so that we keep you know, both the the workers in the confinement houses and the turkeys, which are our livelihood, uh, healthy. And so, you know, that that model is beautiful. It just, you can stamp it in a uh, industrial operation. You can stamp it in an office. You can stamp it at all kinds of places. And, and it all hinges on, do we understand what these things in this environment can do to us? And at which level of exposure uh, are they going to start to become a problem? So one of the things that I, I find interesting is the your emphasis on an exposure um, assessment. There is an interaction that you sometimes have with other folks with regards to professional judgment, uh, and their their point being that that's what they feel is the is the key I, item. So maybe you could comment a little bit on that. Yeah, you bet. So. Um... Uh, AIHA and ACGIH have a joint initiative right now. I'm pretty excited about it. It's called the Improving Exposure Judgments Initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, it's based on the fact that, uh, again, making an, an exposure judgment is where everything starts with what we do. We, we, we make this decision about this environment. If we decide that it's bad, we're going to have to implement something in order to fix it. If we decide it's okay, then we're going to move on. So then you, you start to think about, well, what if we're wrong, right? 
So if, if we're wrong on the low side, so we, we underestimate what the exposures actually are, that means we're underestimating the risk to the employees and we're not implementing controls when we should be. And so we're leaving those employees at risk. The, the mistake is costly to the health of the employees. On the other hand, if we err on the high side, uh, we are overestimating what the exposures are, and that's going to lead us to implement controls where we don't need them. And, and I promise you, nobody out there has too much money to spend on implementing controls. So we're, we're wasting very, very precious resources mm -hmm. uh, on things that we don't need to control because our, our starting place was incorrect and we headed down the wrong path. And so this initiative is aimed at putting in place better quality control around the accuracy of our exposure judgments so that we are more confident that we're making the right decision and we're headed down the right path, both in terms of managing the risks to the employees and in terms of being efficient about managing the resources, the, the honestly too few resources that we have available to manage the exposures to the the folks in the in the plant or the office building or wherever to keep everybody safe. So again, a recognition of this this very fundamental core importance of an accurate exposure judgment, and the fact that we have a big opportunity to improve as a profession at putting in place quality control activities around those judgments. We're we're really interesting profession. You know, uh, every you, you would never find an industrial hygienist who wouldn't understand the importance of uh, quality control programs in the laboratories that do the analysis of the samples that they take. You know, we, we want to make sure that our laboratories are accredited, uh, whether by AIHA or some other organization. We want to make sure that they've got good quality control processes in place. Um, but, but when it comes to our own decisions about what that data tells us or our own um, professional judgments, if you start to scratch at it, we have very few quality control programs in place. Mm -hmm. So here we are demanding these things from, you know, other highly qualified and highly trained people. You know, the, the gal running the laboratory is going to have probably an advanced degree in, in chemistry or biology or whatever area the, the laboratory is interested in, just like we have an advanced degree often in, in our business. And we demand from them uh, rigorous quality control processes around uh, the decisions they're making. But when it comes to our decisions, we sort of put up a lot of smoke and mirrors, to be blunt. And we don't have much we can point to to say that, you know, John, you, you went to school a lot. But in the end, how do I know you really can make accurate exposure decisions uh, when you're kind of out in the field looking at that operation in that uh, factory. And, and I have nothing I can point to, you know. But that's tricky, John, because it is it is somewhat tricky. subjective. When you're going out and consulting in the field, uh, even though, you know, you're you're relying on your, you know, it's your opinion sometimes, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's certainly there's data that you're using to support it and drive your hypothesis and, and prove it true. But it, it's still it is a little bit subjective. It is. So, again, we're back to what if my opinion's wrong? Right. Right. So if my opinion's wrong, I'm going to waste something. I'm either going to waste the health of somebody or I'm going to waste the resources to fix it. So why not put in place quality control practices um, that will help me be more sure that, in fact, I'm making the right decisions? And, and it turns out that uh, this is not a, an area that's never been studied. I, I don't know if you guys are aware of uh, Daniel Kahneman's work. Um, Thinking Fast and Slow is, is kind of a popular press uh, book that he wrote. Um, it talks about how we make decisions. And to, and to simplify it, because that's the only way I can think about it, to simplify it greatly, um, he talks about two modes of decision-making. One is fast thinking and the other is slow thinking. And the huge majority of decisions that we make rely on fast thinking. It's it's almost unconscious. It, it is happening all the time. Uh, we are often not aware that we're making this, the decisions. 
they are really, really important because they help us cope with all of the decisions that we have to make each and every day that, that we're alive. Uh, but it turns out they're not very good at um, kind of <laughs> thinking systematically through a particular problem. And so then there's slow thinking. And slow thinking is basically put in place a process, put in place a system that's going to force you to slow down, to think about very, you know, in a very systematic, carefully documented way, uh, why you're making a particular decision and what that decision is. And that turns out to be a much more accurate way to do business. And so the, the broad point of this AIHA ACGIH initiative is to move our decisions out of the fast thinking lane, which happens all the time. We walk through a factory and we're going, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. That's okay. Very, very quick decisions. It, it drives us to be much more systematic about those decisions and think in a, in a very systematic way through why it is that we're deciding, you know, whatever our judgment is, whatever our qualitative decision is. And when we make a qualitative decision, and, and have an opportunity to check it because maybe we've, we've got an opportunity to go and measure it later on to actually build in place of a feedback loop. So you know, the, the simplest version would be, I'm, you know, I'm walking into the factory. I know I'm going to measure the solvents associated with this operation. But before I do that, I pull out an envelope and I write down, you know, I, I think the exposure is X. And I kind of put that in the drawer. Now I go collect my samples. Uh, I get the feedback from the highly QC'd laboratory. Uh, <laughs> and now I'm going to look at those results and and uh, use statistics, use statistical tools to, to uh, make my decision. And then I'm going to pull that envelope out of the drawer. I'm going to look and see, oh, how did I do? Now, we were involved in some research looking at, oh, how do we do? And it turns out we make a lot of mistakes. And so... You know that that's behind my energy and urgency. We we had opportunities in this research to um, to engage real industrial hygienists. You know these were industrial hygienists in their companies, in their operations, looking at their exposures and making incorrect decisions. And and we could demonstrate that then as part of the research, and that's what we published. So so we know the the science tells us. Um, that we have uh, a big opportunity to improve. Um, and that's why AIHA and ACGH have partnered on kind of moving forward with an improvement initiative. I'm assuming part of this is going to include checklists, almost like a pilot goes through a police. Yeah, you know, checklists check. are yeah, great. I mean, look away pilots, right? I mean, I think pilots yeah. are a great example. I mean, and it's methodic. We hear the pilot and co-pilot, they go down the checklist and they say the most mundane stuff and check every single item you know, every single time, you know, it's like, that's the, right it's on, very, you know, have you read the checklist manifesto is a book? Yes, that, I uh, have. <laughs> yeah, so, You know, the, the physicians take that on and now yeah. in operating rooms are taking yeah. that on. And we should be taking things on like that. in our program, mm -hmm. rather than the, that's okay. We, we sort of check through, all right, you know, document why we think it's a particular thing. Let's look for uh, determinants of exposure, what might be influencing the exposure levels, how much of the materials being used, what kind of ventilation, how close is the person there that we, that we think we're doing in our head, but we're doing it so fast that, um, often our judgments are not correct. So let's be more systematic. Let's build in feedback loops that check our decisions whenever we can. Uh, let's be diligent about using statistical tools. Cause the other thing, this, uh, research we did uh, showed was that if people don't understand the properties of a log normal distribution, which is how most of our um, exposures are distributed, if they don't understand that and use the tools, uh, they are misinterpreting uh, and making, they're, they're tending to underestimate risk actually um, when they actually have the monitoring data. So let's use the statistical tools uh, to tell us, uh, to help us make the decision when we have monitoring data, and then let's compare it to what we thought it was uh, before we had the monitoring data in front of us. And over time, we will then get better and better at making, uh, implementing that slow decision making and making good, accurate 
judgments. And and you know we put this in place when I was working, and it it actually helps focus your efforts on the right place. Um, so you know people think, oh my goodness, this is way too much work. I can never kind of keep up with it. Well, as you do it, what you find out is uh, you're missing opportunities over here where you should have been paying attention. You're you're maybe paying too much of attention over there where things turned out to be okay. Uh, so putting in place these systematic processes uh, in the end make us much more efficient about what we do. And they have the added benefit. You know, I can tell you that that plant managers came up to us and said, you know, this is the first time I understand what the heck you're doing in industrial hygiene. Again, because we implemented a very systematic approach to thinking about exposures in our workplaces. And, and it, it wasn't just sort of the magic of John's head walking through there going, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. It was uh, being very, very systematic and deliberate and being able to show those results to uh, the people that had the money and uh, kind of engage and get their trust and, and buy-in. So it's kind of a follow-up on that, uh, John. What do you expect uh, the uh, this committee to or initiative to to uh, result in? What what is it they're looking to uh, have as an outcome of this particular? Yeah, this well, it's pretty ambitious, Don. the The stated goal is a culture shift, a culture okay. shift from one where uh, these tools and systematic processes that drive slow thinking are are frankly rarely used. Uh, to one where their use is expected and is um, just a routine part of our practice. Um, you know, we've we've laid out a 10-year plan um, to kind of get us there. We just uh, finished up some of the initial um, information gathering that will be used by uh, the people who are designing the, the sort of culture shift campaign. Uh, in fact, just this week, we had sort of a meeting to talk through the results and talk about uh, how to move things forward. Uh, so um, AIHA has uh, fronted some, some significant money uh, to hire people who know how to do marketing campaigns uh, to help uh, get this culture shift messaging started. So again, shift, shifting our culture from where these tools, techniques, practices these very systematic approaches are rarely used to one where it's expected. One, one where down where you and I would look at each other and and if I wasn't using statistics to evaluate monitoring data, you would say to me, you know, John, I have a concern about how you're practicing. I I I'm, I need you for the sake of um, your practice because I know you want to do a good job, and for the sake of our workers, I need you to start using these statistical tools. Whereas today, to be honest, it's all of us looking at each other saying, well, you know, you first, you know, <laughs> and we got to we got to get beyond that. Yeah, you, you were this has been ongoing for quite a number of years. I see that in 2008, you were one of the co-editors of a publication entitled The Strategy for Assessment, Assessing and Managing Occupational Exposures. Now it's the second edition of that, and it was issued by the AIHA Press. Can you describe what how you became involved in that uh, that book? Yeah, again, my my fundamental interest is in practicing. How do, how do we how do we do a great job in our practices um, at understanding and managing these environments in our workplaces? And and again, my interest is in the starting point and making sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure that we start off in the right direction. That our that our our early decisions about what the exposure is, and it, you know, it's exposure intensity relative to some "quote unquote" safe level. So we'll we'll simplify things and say OEL. You know, so uh, if if we don't get that right, then we're off on wild goose chases. We're we're off fixing things that we don't need to, or we're leaving people at risk. So because of that very core importance, I'm really, really interested in how do we do that well? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that got me interested in the uh, AIHA's Exposure Assessment Strategies Committee. Uh, this was uh, you know, back in the early 90s, a long time ago. Um, we, uh, we at uh, 3M at the time, were um, 
thinking about how to do our work better. Uh, you know, I, I worked with some really smart, uh, energetic people at 3M. And, and so we're thinking about, man, how can we do a better job at doing industrial hygiene in this big, complicated uh, environment? Uh, you know, you may or may not know, you kind of know post-it notes from 3M. But, you know, in the end, we, we produced, you know, tens of thousands of different products all over the world. And so it's a really, really complex mix of uh, manufacturing operations. And so we, we wanted to figure out how to be much more systematic about doing that. Well, the Exposure Assessment Strategies Committee uh, was just heading out on this journey of uh, updating their um, manual, you know, strategy for assessing and managing occupational exposures. And uh, because I was so interested in it, in my work, you know, regular work life, uh, I volunteered to participate in that um, effort. And it, and it was really, really fruitful. So as it, it, at that time, it's not anymore, but at that time we did it as a consensus document. So everybody on the committee had to, uh, you know, buy into uh, the approach. So that led to all kinds of very rich discussions from a, a whole range of diverse uh, people about how to do this well. And, and so as I'm kind of getting that and, and Joe Damiano was working at Alcoa, he was my partner in crime on, on that particular project. Um, he's working similar implementations in Alcoa. You know, we're stealing stuff, <laughs> putting in the book, but also putting it in place in uh, our operations. Um, and, and it, it was just a win-win-win situation. Learning from these people who knew how to do this, had all these different experiences, sort of stealing the good stuff, putting it in the book, working to implement it. Um, you know, and, and since then, of course, it's gone through a couple more editions. Huh. Uh, Joe and I continue to be the, the main authors on sort of the core text. Um, and so what we bring, bring in each update is, more practical things, you know, okay, so this particular thing, which we didn't emphasize very much in the second edition, really turns out to help a lot. It it, it helped us a ton uh, in 3M. And so we need to emphasize that more in the third edition or the fourth edition. And, and you know, right now we're having conversations about our chapters uh, in the fifth edition. And again, we're bringing forward um, lessons learned and how we might, again, make it as efficient and effective as we can for people so that um, all of us have, you know, as, as good a practice as we can in terms of working to help uh, those workers and communities who are under our care. So I, I would it was think, a, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, keep, keep going. Finish your point. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say it was just a great experience and, and win, win, win. I had a very, very supportive uh, boss guy by the name of Jim Sugg uh, at 3M. Uh, really, really interested in uh, uh, helping us do a, a better job at, at the company. You know, I give him a lot of credit. He was the guy that, you know, he's in charge of industrial hygiene. Basically, he and I went to talk to the C-suite folks about how the job we were doing wasn't so great. You know, so think about that. You, you've you been working at this company for years. Now you're going to go with this young idiot uh, up to all the big shots in the company to say, we haven't been doing such a great job. Here's how we can do better. And, uh, you know, good for him. Good for him. I mean, one of the things I think is probably the, the case, I mean, Don and I both have been private practice people. I, I'm Don most of your career too. I mean, I, I have my right. entire career. And uh, and I think this would probably be true for people that work in-house in an industrial hygiene capacity is that probably the longer you're involved with doing assessments, it's harder not to become jaded. And when you see the low-lying fruit, right, you see a problem to think, yeah, I'm so smart. I found it right away and I'm done, you know, like, right. I mean, and, and that's like, and I swear I have to, I have to keep reprogramming my brain when I do a walkthrough because I want to believe that I'm that good, you know, that I only need 10 minutes and I know what's happening at this in the space. I mean, this, so I guess the checklist point in that whole mindset is how you 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 go through the whole pre-flight check. That's no matter right, what, Bob. Right? Yeah. You're human, man. You're human. <laughs> every human does that. Yeah. And every human brings the biases that help us make those mistakes. So that's why, 
you know, the the big shot. You mentioned pilots, and I mentioned uh, medical surgeons. Right? That, yeah, that's yeah. the the two areas where uh, this research has really been um, kind of put into practice. Because uh, I think because the outcomes are so immediate and costly. Uh, you know, not just to the the people who suffer whatever adverse effect it was, but you know, malpractice suits are expensive. And um, so that that behooves uh, practicing physicians and hospitals, et cetera, to really work to put in place these things that get us out of that mindset of, sure. well, I'm the expert and I know, and by yeah. gosh, this is the answer. Because it turns out experts aren't so expert. Well, if so you bring we like need... 10, yeah, if you bring 10 lab sponges into the operating suite, it'd be good if 10 lab sponges come out of the operating That's right. suite. You know, it's like, That's right. you know, the, yeah. these little, these little things that, you, you know, you check and yeah. count. It's, it's not a bad idea. Really important. So as I mentioned the 2008 uh, edition, and you said there are additional editions, and a fifth one is 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 due, I guess, in the next couple of years. Well, certainly, um, what has changed since 2008 in terms of uh, the strategy for um, exposure assessments? Yeah, no, I I would say, um, you know, you you'll see that the book in the fourth edition, the current fourth edition, is about twice as long. Um, the the core processes are very similar to what was in the second edition. It was a fairly big shift from the first edition to the second edition. Um, the processes are fairly similar in the, the fourth edition. What, what has changed is shifting emphasis. So if you look back at the second edition, you'll see a lot of discussion about what we called long-term average exposures. And, and the thinking was, well, if if you had an agent with a, an occupational exposure limit that was defined over, you know, a year's worth of exposure, whereas, you know, the vast majority then were eight-hour kinds of exposures, then, you know, this would be the approach. Well, today, I know of no long-term exposure average um, occupational exposure limit. So we've de-emphasized uh those approaches because you know pe people frankly were making mistakes they were deciding you know here's an oel for uh our carcinogen i'm going to interpret it as uh something that i i think of as a long-term average over the course of the year and so i'm going to have some days really really high and some days really really low and as long as it all averages out i'm okay that's an incorrect interpretation of our current occupational exposure limits. So that was de-emphasized. Um, an extremely helpful um, tool that, uh, that we implemented when I was working was an assessment, not just of the exposure level, but of the certainty in that exposure level. And, and the reason it's useful is that as you are headed down the path of follow-up, you're going to do different things if you're highly certain that your exposure is bad than you are if you're highly uncertain that your exposure is bad. And, and again, if you're trying to drive systematic processes and systematic approaches, you, you need to be able to make those distinctions. And so we've put a little more emphasis on uh, making not just an exposure decision, but a, a certainty decision to help drive prioritization and um, follow-up. I would say those are the kind of the two big changes that come to mind, Don. Mm -hmm. So uh, basically, I wanted to follow up on on um, the another initiative that you and I were involved with, the uh, also a joint AAHA and ACJH advisory group about uh, uh, defining the science. And it, it's uh, it was an interesting process for me. I wonder what you think has been the success of that particular advisory bus, uh, group and what were some of the outcomes? Yeah, no, I, I, it's been a lot of fun, Don. Um, mm -hmm. So again, a, a, a part of what I, I think is really fun is that AIHA and ACGH came together to work on that um, initiative, which, which is ongoing. Um, it was really recognition that between the two associations, we are by far uh, the biggest um, by number of members, the biggest organization in terms of numbers of practitioners. And so um, if we can 
if we can um, leverage the voices of those practitioners in order to to bubble up the frustrations that uh, those of us who are out in the trenches are experiencing uh, so that we can determine whether those frustrations are due to the fact that our science is limited and we need to um, put in place research projects in order to address that science or whether those frustrations are driven by the fact that I'm not able to implement current science or I don't know about current science. So there's some sort of barrier that's keeping me as a practitioner from implementing what is the state-of-the-art science. Well, let's bubble that up as well so that the associations can work on projects uh, in order to address those barriers. Might be education campaigns, might be tools, uh, whatever those barrier, whatever might be an effective way to lower the activation energy to put my chemistry hat back on, but lower the activation energy around implementation of the science so that, that it's easier for practitioners to actually grab and go with the science that, that we need in order to um, protect workers and protect communities. So it's really a, a, an effort to, number one, bubble up the frustrations that we as practitioners are, are feeling, uh, get the word to researchers to say, you know, here's here's what we are hearing from our members, largely practitioners. Uh, so get the word to uh, researchers, get the word to funding organizations so that we might accelerate the advancement of our science in the areas that are important to the people who are on the shop floor actually implementing the, the programs. So... What is the follow-up on that? What, 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 what's next in terms of that particular advisory group? Yeah, so the advisory group just came out with the research agenda, the first uh, edition of the research agenda. There is, if you go to the uh, AIHA.org, um, you, you can do a search on defining the science. You could also go, there's a really wonderful resource called the Academic Portal. So if you go to the AIHA.org, you look on the upper right menu, uh, you'll see uh, practitioners. And if you select practitioners, you can choose uh, academic portal. And there's all kinds of free resources, including a link to this defining the science uh, activity. And um, there you can download the research agenda. That's the, the current version. The, the commitment on the part of the advisory group is to keep that evergreen. So you know, there's, you'll also see on that uh, website a link where you can suggest new research topics or you can suggest uh, areas of frustration where you're not able to um, get something done. Uh, might be a barrier to practice, might be a research need. Um, so the that inaugural edition is there. We have um, a short list at this point of organizations that we need to make aware of that research agenda. So at that same website, you can uh, look at that list and suggest other organizations that should be made aware. Um, the uh, AIHA is already working hard to get the word out about the research agenda, to, to do a lot of cold calling, frankly, to uh, knock on the doors of uh, organizations and say, you know, here's what we think, here's what our members think, here's what our practitioner voices are saying. Uh, would be important resources, excuse me, important uh, research to get completed in order to help them do a better job out in the workplace. So I, I would say getting the word out is our, our short-term uh, need. Uh, uh, sort of looking more middle and longer term, I, I think there are real opportunities to better connect researchers to practitioners because, um, you know, the, the, the research that we published was very much a partnership with the University of Minnesota. We, we, we still, 3M has a really, really strong relationship with the University of Minnesota. And, and so that research was driven by the, the U of M, the grad students at the U of M were involved in doing it. We, we got a lot of companies involved that then worked through the U. Well, researchers need places where they can understand practical problems and, and they can do research that will address those practical problems. 
And so if, if they don't have access to workplaces, they're forced to do it in some artificial area and they might, yeah, they might not understand at all what the, what the true problems are. And so I think, Don, we have an opportunity to try to strengthen our ability to make the connections between researchers and practitioners to help those researchers uh, you know, understand what it truly is that, that we need and you know, to help the practitioners. It, it, communication is always two-way, right? So that um, the practitioners can understand, okay, the researcher point of view, because often that's difficult. To, you know, if, you, if you haven't experienced the research world, uh, it's difficult to kind of understand uh, what, what their particular issues are. That's always yeah. been a problem, though, hasn't it, John? I mean, in the industry, because I've heard this, I mean, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but I've heard this so many times in my 30 some years in this industry of, you know, we have to research to practice and blah, 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 you know, ad nauseum. Right. Yeah. And yeah. but but does it ever really happen? Like and, and like and as you just mentioned, and I totally concur with you, it has to be bi-directional. I mean, it's it's right. not a one way thing, you know, but we don't even do a good job of one way dissemination of research information to the field practitioners. Yeah, no, we're great not great at it. We're not great at distilling these white papers into something that's actionable <laughs> in the field. Great you know? segue, because I think that's the, that's the fourth piece. So the fourth piece is get the research into the hands of the practitioners. And, and I love your tagline. You know, you guys have the tagline global research to practice. So our tagline for this project is practice to research to practice. Let's, let's bubble up the practitioner voice. Let's get the researchers engaged. Let's get the, the researchers and practitioners partnering on research that is going to be the most practical so that uh, that research is now accessible to those of us down in the trenches who are doing the day-to-day work. And it's not lost in a journal somewhere. We're, you know, we're, we're terrible at keeping up with the white papers and the journals in the first place. Because you're in the field. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, that's, you know, the, the problem is you're not in academia to sit there and read papers all day long. You're not getting paid to do that. You right. know, it's you're like, running, running, running. You're, you know, you're absolutely running, yeah. running, running. The fire hose is, is <laughs> you know, drowning you. Uh, so, so our associations, AIHA and ACGIH, can play a huge role in making the, you know, targeting the fire hose and narrowing the stream and narrowing the pressure in a way that that uh, practitioners can engage in. So there's another initiative that we have. It's called um, Standards of Care. Uh, so if, if you think about a practitioner out in the field, industrial hygiene is wonderful. One of the things I love about it is is how broad it is. You know, it, it's, <laughs> you know, every everything in the world might be uh, of issue to you in a particular uh, work environment. And so it becomes really, really hard for a practitioner to understand all of this stuff, all of this science, all of this guidance, all of this uh, information about how to do their job as efficiently and effectively as they can. So the idea of the Standards of Care Initiative is to leverage the expertise that's in the technical committees to to sort of in their area of expertise, take all of this stuff and think about, you know, what, in their opinion, what are the core nuggets, the the critical risk uh, uh, practices that need to be in place for somebody to be efficient and effective in um, in in protecting workers, and so let's get that in a in a concise uh, document with references, so that we as practitioners can can look at instead of this overwhelming fire hose of piles of books and journals and white papers and stuff. Uh, instead, look at this more summary, concise document that that. Uh, experts have decided are kind of the key things that we need to be thinking about. Uh, again, with the references, so I can go and, and dig in and, and really understand the subject matter if I need to, um, so that I can start ticking through, you know, yeah, I got that in place. Oops, nope, I don't have that. That's something that I ought to put on my continuous improvement plan. No, I got that in place. Oh, nope, don't have that, don't have that. And and it becomes a resource you know, it becomes it becomes a quick start guide for a new practitioner, so that you know, here's the library. Go learn all that. No, here, start with this thing and start thinking about 
what you need to have in place as, as core processes, core practices for doing effective um, exposure assessment or for doing effective hearing conservation programs. And so it becomes a quick start guide for new practitioners. And for those of us who've been around a long time, it becomes a tick list that we can go through and think about continuous improvement. We can think about, you know, I got that, got that. Oh, man, I really don't do that very well. Or I never even thought of that. And so I'm going to put that on my plan so that in the next year or two, I'll start to implement those particular practices. Everybody in our business can improve. So we don't expect that anybody's going to meet all of these things uh, when the standards of care is finally finished. Uh, but it absolutely will be a a core instrument for continuously improving our practices to make them better and better and better. Yeah, we had a comment that came up over on the uh, global community platform that I just wanted to bring up and get your your read back on it. But it sounds like you're discussing bringing industrial and systems engineering to indoor environments. Darn right, darn there right, absolutely. So we have to be very process and systematic about our uh, about what we do. <clears throat> Otherwise, it's not sustainable, right? We have we have to be more transparent. We have to be more systematic. Uh, again, a, a delightful, unexpected outcome of what we implemented was that the plant managers finally understood what the heck we were doing. And so because they understand processes, they understand systematized uh, approaches. You know, in, in, in 3M, they, they called it Six Sigma and, and the 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 you know, core process understanding, core process improvement, uh, laying out those process diagrams. Well, if it's in John's head, you know, that's okay, that's okay, oh, that's a problem. They have no ability to understand and follow that process, to understand what their role is in that process. So when, when you become more systematic about it, when you when you grab these tools that industrial, industrial engineers have been doing, using for years, now you can plug into all their quality control processes, right? You know, Mr. Deming set set the stage for us to plug right in. And now we become part of their rhythm of operation because we have a systematic approach that they can understand, that they can integrate, and they can put in place uh, along with all of their other processes that they run in their particular factory. Well, uh, we're right at the end of our uh, hour here. We have going um, fast. Yeah, one one last question from uh, from me. It basically just, you know, you've you spent 32 years at 3M Company and uh, ended up as director of corporate safety and industrial hygiene. What would you say what would be the highlight of your career at 3M? What was the mo what are you most proud about accomplishing? Yeah, the people I worked with. We um, again, really really smart folks, very very energetic. We by the time I left, we had in place systematic global processes that were integrated into the manufacturing systems to drive health and safety in the in the company and and that's what i'm proud of we we moved it from a champion driven in some you know the individual practitioner's head into a very transparent systematic process that our partners in engineering and our partners in manufacturing could engage in and understand and partner with us. And, and, and it just became part of the operating rhythm of the manufacturing operations to, to look at uh, you know, our scorecards in addition to their scorecards. That, that was cool. Well, yeah, I imagine would be uh, quite a change from what you probably first encountered when you were there 32 years be, uh, before that. So it's it's quite a, an epic uh, journey, I guess, over that time. So thank you very much, Sean, for, uh, for uh, answering some of our questions. And I appreciate you being here. And uh, back to you, Bob. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, we're done again. It's like th this one, this one went surprisingly fast. Um, I, you know, that sometimes they go a lot faster, but I, I, I don't know I, that I, we could, we, we really need to have John on again on another show. Um, because, because John I, talks I, a lot. Well, I, I like what John's saying. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's good stuff. Um, a, anyway, we'll, uh, you know, we will be back, uh, in, in about a month. I mean, we, our cycle's about a four week cycle with this program. Um, uh, but again, uh, indoor environments is a, uh, joint 
effort uh, production uh, from the indoor, uh, excuse me, International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, ISEAC, and the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IQGA, um, and partnered with Healthy Indoors uh, Media for us to produce this program for those guys. Uh, so this is, you know, real exciting. And again, we continue uh, every episode to bring uh, some cutting edge information that I think is very useful. So uh, for, uh, for my co-host, uh, Don, and for John, our guest, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we will see you again uh, several weeks. <laughs> Thanks again, everybody. <laughs>